Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, March 27th, 2022. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. On December 20th, 1992, the movie Leap of Faith starring Steve Martin, opened in theaters. Now, it's one of my uh, more favorite underrated films. I absolutely love the soundtrack. It's incredible. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the story, it centers around the Reverend Jonas Nightingale and his traveling tent revival team bringing Jesus to a neighborhood near you. Now, his bus breaks down in the small town of Rustwater, Kansas, so they decide to set up their tents and to make the best of a difficult situation. Well, Reverend Nightingale has quite the system uh, going. Despite the pretense of salvation, these tent revivals are merely a way for Jonas to fleece the people out of as much money as he can possibly get. You see, he's a con artist, nothing more. And uh, behind the scenes, they have this high-tech surveillance system, quite a few tricks up their collective sleeves, including a a crew that's uh, planted in the audience to uh, spark revival and giving. Uh, Deborah Winger plays uh, Jonas's chief partner in crime, who's uh, behind the scenes in charge of the entire production. Well, Jonas awes and inspires the crowds as he uh, shares things that seemingly only God would have known, but... Thanks to the help of their backstage technology, and in case you can't read the screen, at the bottom it says, Row G, Seat 3, Blue-Haired Woman, Arthritis. They got some information as they overheard people talking on their way in. Well, Reverend Nightingale knows how to work a crowd, and the common folk of Rustwater, Kansas, are none the wiser, willing to empty their pockets for this amazing, and I'll put it in air quotes, Man of God, right? Now, there's a lot more to the film than that, of course, including a very skeptical sheriff played by Liam Neeson. Uh, But, you know, that's often the reputation that the church has when it comes to asking for money in the eyes of many, right? The outside community is often quite skeptical. Of course, thanks to years of tele-evangelism and many of the scandals that the church has had where some pastors are getting rich off their unsuspecting followers, absconding with the money, or just saying it's going to one place, but actually it's going to their own pockets. Welcome to the fourth week in our Lenten series entitled Before All Things. And in this six weeks uh, in the Christian calendar uh, known as Lent, as we're preparing for the celebration of Easter, it's, it's a time when people examine their relationship with God, their personal devotional life. They work on habits and practices, spiritual disciplines that might help us uh, better live into the life of faith that we want to have. Well, this series has been focusing on the issue of stewardship and generosity and what it means to put Jesus before all things in our lives, including our finances. Now, we've been reading through uh, the 8th and ninth chapters of 2 Corinthians, The Apostle Paul, who helped establish many of the first Christian communities in the Mediterranean region, uh, he was the author of this letter, and he had founded the church in Corinth, a thriving Roman city in the southern region of Greece. But a subsequent visit had left, shall we say, a bit of a rift between Paul and some of the church members. Uh, It caused quite a bit of struggle and uh, 
uh, heartache for Paul and for the community, but once they were reconciled to each other, uh, a large portion of the book of 2 Corinthians was penned by Paul, uh, having, having gone through that reconciliation. Well, much of the chapters in 8 and 9 center around an offering that Paul was collecting. Not a shady and unscrupulous one like the Reverend Jonas Nightingale was perpetrating, but because of their brief falling out that they had in their relationship, Paul feels like he has to reiterate why it's so important for the Corinthians to participate in this collection. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Uh, if you have the church app and you open up to uh, Bible, click on that. It'll take you right to the beginning of chapter 9. Paul says, Now it is not necessary for me to write to you about the ministry to the saints, for I know your eagerness, which is the subject of my boasting about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Last week, Pastor John uh, led us through the end of chapter 8, and Paul was sending the, uh, a delegation to the church in Corinth. And in today's reading, he's explained to them why this delegation is coming. The opening phrase of this chapter is interesting, don't you think? Uh, now, it is not necessary for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints, but of course, he's writing to them about this ministry to the saints. The King James Version says, it is superfluous for me to write to you. Uh, the Message Bible says, if I wrote any more on the relief offering for the poor Christians, I'd be repeating myself. Uh, one commentator I read this week said that this is a common ancient rhetorical device when you're discussing a subject that has become tiresome, right? Oh, we, how many times do we have to go over this same way? It's a polite way of saying, let's go through this one more time, right? We know that the elephant in the room here for chapters 8 and 9 is this collection for the poor in Jerusalem. Mitzi Minor, in her Smith & Helwes commentary, says this, Paul doesn't want to irritate the Corinthians again by implying that he lacks the confidence that they will complete their collection, but the truth is, he lacks the confidence in them. Consequently, he will risk their irritation to do what he feels necessary to get the collection back on track. Now, it is not necessary for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints, for I know your eagerness, which is the subject of my boasting about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Acacia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Well, evidently, Paul took the liberty to boast about uh, what possibly could have been the original eagerness of the church in Corinth to contribute to the saints, uh, to the collection going uh, to the church in Jerusalem, which in turn, that fueled then the Macedonians to give beyond their means and, and an incredibly generous outpouring, despite their poverty. And we have to wonder, was Paul being ironic here when it came to boasting? Perhaps. Was he giving the Corinthians too much credit? Possibly. Maybe they actually started out strong and enthusiastic uh, for the offering. Who knows? But it seems, however, that Paul is now facing a very sticky dilemma. Verses 3 and 4. But I'm sending uh, the brothers in order that our boasting about you may not uh, prove to have been empty in this case, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, well, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you in this undertaking. 
All right, so Paul kind of gives us insight to what the plan is here. The plan is that the, the Macedonian churches had already completed their share of the collection, and they've selected some representatives who will travel with Paul bearing the gifts. Along the way, they would stop by the church in Corinth to pick up their portion of the gift and their representatives, and then all of them would travel to Jerusalem uh, to present that offering in person to the Christians there. And, and everyone would come to see the unity of the church where Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles simply means non-Jews, are sharing in the mission and ministry expenses of the early church. The plan, however, hit a bit of a road bump when Paul and the Corinthians had a falling out. And so the Corinthians evidently stopped collecting. Now, Paul has to be rather blunt. Um, if you're not ready when we come for the collection, that's going to make both of us look bad, says Paul. In a culture dominated by shame and honor, such an experience could have been devastating to Paul's ministry. Mitzi Minor notes that uh, for a male to be dishonored or shamed in this context, he would have had a very difficult time just functioning uh, in the culture. Paul's already has some credibility issues with some of the church in Corinth, if the Macedonians, whom apparently he's on good relations with, should start to question Paul's motives and his honor, well, then his ministry in all of Greece might be uh, questionable. So not to mention how bad this would look for the Corinthian church themselves, especially in the eyes of their brothers and sisters in Macedonia that have been doing more than their share to contribute to the needs of the saints. But remember, I said a few weeks ago, Paul knows that the church in Corinth has competition issues. They love competing. And so Paul is using that to his advantage and trying to encourage them to spur them on to greatness, to continue what they said they would do. So that's why the brothers are coming, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, so that you'll be ready for this. Think of them as the advanced team. That's coming to prime the pump, so to speak, to make sure that when Paul and the official delegation arrives, everything will be in order and no one will look bad. Verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and, and to arrange in advance for this bountiful gift that you have promised, so that it may be ready as a voluntary gift and not as an extortion. You remember that bountiful gift that you promised, Paul says? Yeah, well, you don't want to, you want to be able to give it voluntarily, right, out of compassion. You don't want to have to give it begrudgingly, uh, almost as if it was extortion. And, and, and Paul is working his audience here. He knows who he's speaking to. It's supposed to be a gift, right? It's all about grace, not greed. And you've already promised to give it. Paul knows they just might need a little extra encouragement to get across that bridge, so to speak. And you know what? Spoiler alert, they came through with flying colors. In his letter to the church in Rome in chapter 15, Paul writes this. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem in a ministry to the saints uh, for Macedonia and, and Acacia have been pleased to share their resources with the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do this, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they also ought to be of service to them in material things. So they did it. The Corinthians came through. Uh, just as a reminder for your geography, Corinth was in the lower uh, region, the southern region of Greece known as Acacia. Now, with that out of the way, Paul gets to the heart of his message in chapter 9, verse 6. 
The point is this. The one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And as Inga said, God is also a cheerful giver, God's self. I mean, there's so much good stuff here in these few verses, right? We, we have to remember that in the ancient Near East, they were an agrarian society. Uh, and sowing and reaping were everyday occurrences. When it came to sowing, uh, the most common uh, way of, of planting was known as broadcasting seeds. I love this painting by Van Gogh called The Sower. A farmer is carrying a bag of seed uh, over by his abdomen, and he takes his hand, and then he just scatters it as far as it would go. Uh, Jesus even told a parable about the sower and, and compares uh, the sower to, a kingdom, the, to the kingdom of God, uh, a farmer broadcasting the seed far and wide. Because everyone knew when it came to sowing, more is better, right? You can't be stingy when it comes to seed. The more you sow, the more you'll eventually reap. It's just pure math, right? More seeds mean more chances for growth and fruitfulness. This is perhaps the most uh, familiar portion of chapters 8 and 9, and many of us have heard this uh, sowing sparingly and bountifully verse. But now we get to see the context in which it was written. Paul is shepherding this church in Corinth. They've already promised to share in this mission and ministry of the early church, and yet they failed to bring it to fruition. So are you going to sow sparingly or bountifully, Paul asks them. But as important as, important as Paul feels about this offering, right, not only to the church at large, but specifically to the Corinthians, because it will become an expression of their love. It'll be an indicator of their maturity of discipleship. As, as important as that is, Paul still gives this caveat. But each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Right? There's no arm twisting here, no guilt pressuring. They have to decide for themselves how much to give. It's between you and the Holy Spirit. Last fall, uh, 80 of us participated in an online generosity survey. And throughout this series, I've been sharing some of the results of that inventory. One of the questions asked, in your life, has anyone modeled what it means to be a generous person? 81% said yes which is awesome, but that means that 20, about 20% of us have either said no or not sure. Having someone model generosity is crucial for our own practices in generosity, right? If we haven't seen someone that we know and love and respect be generous, it's, it's that much more harder for us to do the same. And so when it comes to making up our own minds and choosing to give cheerfully, not reluctantly, our past plays a huge role in our current and future actions. Another question in the inventory was, was a statement that said, true generosity is a discipline. Now, the options were always, often, sometimes, seldom, or never. 64% of us said always, and 23% of us said often, right? So that's almost 90% of us agreeing that we can't just wait until we feel like giving to be generous, right? Generosity requires discipline, something we have to work at and do on a regular occasion, regular basis. Interesting enough, another question said, true generosity is planned, and again, you have the same uh, options, always, often, sometimes, seldom, and never, but this time, 
Less than half, only 45% of us, said that planned, uh, planned generosity is always or often, while 50% of us said sometimes, which is very interesting given the previous question uh, on generosity requiring discipline. Verses 8 and 9. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work as it is written. He scatters abroad, he gives to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. I've said this before, and Pastor John echoed it last week. Paul isn't trying to take the Corinthians on a guilt trip here. He's giving them deep theological truths. Yes, he's talking about this particular offering, but even more deeply, he's talking about what it means to be generous in your entire life, to, to have a life that's, that's rooted and grounded in, in God's amazing grace. The word blessing here is the word that we keep seeing, charis, or grace. God's grace pours out blessing upon blessing to us. Each of us receives it without earning it or deserving it. That's why they call it grace in the first place. But it's not like God's grace is an exclusive reward for the select few, right? No, God's blessing enables us to share abundantly in every good work. To share abundantly, Paul says. That's how God operates. That's how God created us to operate. And yes, each of us have to make up our own minds on how much we are to give, and not just our finances, but with our time and our energy and our talents and our bags of Legos as well, right? But God has created us to be generous, not just for us, but to bless others. Author and pastor Tony Campolo in his book, Let Me Tell You a Story, comments that the church has a mission to the world, but it often lacks the resources to carry out that mission. And then listen to how he finishes. Even though its people have the financial resources that are acquired. He illustrates this reality by the following true story, and I'll be uh, sharing it from his own words. One time I had flown into Philadelphia on a red-eye from the West Coast, and when the plane landed at 8.30 in the morning, I was met by my secretary who broke the news to me that I had a speaking engagement at 10 a.m. that same morning. I don't know how we missed this one, she said. Somewhere along the lines, the notices of this engagement fell between the cracks, so I wanted to be here to meet you because you need to be taken directly to the church. It's one of those World Day of Prayer services. You're supposed to deliver a missionary message, she said. When I took my place behind the pulpit, <laughs> to be honest, I wasn't thinking clearly. I was too tired to be in any place other than my own bed. Consequently, I didn't react as I should have when the woman leading the meeting announced to those gathered that she had a prayer request from a missionary in Venezuela. She described a wonderful doctor who had given her life to serving the poor in the barrios of Caracas. This missionary doctor was asking for $5,000 to put an addition onto her medical dispensary. The addition was desperately needed because with her present facility, she couldn't handle all the sick and infirm who came her way. So the leader of the group uh, then asked Dr. Campolo, would you please lead us in prayer that the Lord might provide the $5,000 that is needed by our sister in Venezuela. And before I could catch myself, Tony writes, I said, no. But what I will do is take all the money that I have in my wallet and I'll put it on the altar. 
And then I'm going to ask everyone else to do the same. Don't write out any checks. We're only going to accept cash today. And then after we put all of our cash on the altar, we'll count it up. And then I'll ask God to write out a check for the difference. He said it was a good day to pull this off because I only had $2.25 in my wallet. (laughs) And as I put it on the altar, the leader benevolently, benevolently smiled and then said, okay, Dr. Campolo, we've all gotten the point, haven't we? And I said, no, I don't think we have, because I only see my $2.25 on the altar, right? What about you? And he motioned to that woman. Now, she was taken aback by my aggressive request, but she opened up her wallet and pulled out $110 and slapped it down on top of my meager $2.25. And then I said, we're on our way. We have $112.25. We're looking for $5,000, and now it's your turn, I said as I pointed to a woman who was sitting in the front pew on my right. She looked around, she smiled a bit, and then she got up and walked to the altar and put her cash on top of ours. And then I got the next woman to do it next to her, and then the next one, and the next one. He says, it took me almost 25 minutes to collect this offering as one by one, woman by woman, came up and placed her money on the communion table. When they had finished laying their money out there, we counted it, and want to guess how much we had? Nope, not $5,000. We had over $8,000. And even then, I knew I hadn't gotten all of the cash. I could see some of the women putting a little bit of meager offerings in there, holding back most of what they had and giving me kind of dirty looks. He says, there wasn't any time for me left to preach. I don't think they wanted to hear from me anymore anyway. So I simply said to the congregation, the audacity of asking God for $5,000 when he has already provided us with more than $8,000. We should not be asking God to supply our needs because God already has. And God who is able to supply you with every blessing in abundance so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work, Paul says. As it is written, he scatters abroad, he gives to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we were created by God to be a blessing to others. We have been blessed by God in so many ways, and you can just start by looking at the sunrise each morning. Grace upon grace, so that by having enough of everything, we may share abundantly in every good work. We were created for generosity. Two weeks ago, I shared with you my giving journey, seven uh, events in my life that have shaped my understanding of money and giving and generosity. And I asked you to start thinking about your own life and some events and experiences that have helped shape you. Uh, And so I want you to continue this process. If you didn't start it two weeks ago, that's okay. You can start today. So here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to narrow down your list to six to nine, okay, ten if you have to, experiences uh, that have shaped you. And try to think about a variety of ages and seasons in your life. And then as you narrow them down, try to pick, you know, a little from each section and and begin to discern what it is that you learned from each of them, right? What was it that was positive or negative? We could have 
negative experiences that have shaped us as well. Paul was writing to the church in Corinth some 2,000 years ago. He knew that stinginess and generosity were both spiritual issues. And he wanted to help the Corinthians grow in their own giving journeys. So he reminded them of God's incredible grace in their lives and how that grace and those blessings weren't uh, just to keep for themselves. They were given in order that they might share abundantly in every good work. He wanted them to give cheerfully and without reluctance, but he knew that so many of them had not had generosity modeled in their lives, and so they needed help in order to grow and mature. The same is true for so many of us. It may seem like it's going to take a a leap of faith for you to start growing in this area, but rest assured, Paul and God are not Jonas Nightingale, not trying to con anyone out of anything, right? Paul is trying to help us come to understand the incredible joy and blessing that comes from being generous, that each of us can grow in our own giving journey starting today. As we move closer to Holy Week and to Easter, may we not lose sight of the one who gave all he had for us, Jesus Christ, whose life and death modeled the ultimate in generosity. So shall it be, and may we follow in his footsteps. Amen.